Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Paul Webb. He began his career at a famous zoo that specialized in captive breeding programs for rare species. After eight years, he left the, convic- the, the conviction that captive breeding has no role to play in the conservation of species or habitat. He worked for the ruling family of a Gulf state for many years, turning half the country into a wildlife reserve and looking after the largest herd of Arabian oryx in the world, which was by then extinct in the wild. He's organized and funded numerous projects all over the world to preserve the rare flora and fauna and participated in field work to secure the habitat of numerous species. Under the name A.P. Wolf, produced a book on the wildlife and environment of the region for the ruling family. He spent four years in the remote and forbidden zones of the southern Maldives, writing and producing a book on the environment for the president's office of the Maldives. Now a full-time writer and researcher specializing in the conservation of habitat and wildlife, having recently published his latest work, The Second Level of Extinction, Wildlife Conservation and the Myth of Captive Breeding Program in Zoos, and is currently working on a volume about the black-footed ferret captive breeding and reintroduction scheme by the USFWS, United States Fish and Wildlife Service. And we have done interviews before about uh, black-footed ferrets and about uh, California condors, so check those out. And then today we're going to talk about Arabian oryxes. So first... Thank you for all your great work in the wild. And second, thank you for being on the program. You're welcome, Pat. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, give us an introduction to Arabian oryxes and uh, talk about their range, numbers, etc., what they look like prior to their the collapse of their populations, and then talk about the cause of the collapse, and then we'll move from there. Okay. Um well, they're the smallest member of, of the Ox family, only about a metre. Uh, but they have this lovely, luminous white uh, colour to them. And uh, undersized tinge brown, black patient, neck shots long, straight horns, some 50 centimetres long. But they are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, when I first went out to the Middle East, and I had the um, thrill, and pleasure of looking after the largest um, earth of Arabian oryx in the world, anyway. It was just mind-numbing. It was just the most beautiful sight in, in, in the environment. And I, I, it was just amazing. I was privileged to see that. Um, but, and they are beautiful animals. They're absolutely gorgeous. Um, and in, in, in the old days, in, in the Arab world, they were never really endangered or, or in any sort of serious trouble because the Arabs hunted them, obviously, um, but very sparsely. There was only a sparse population and they only took very few of them simply because they didn't have vehicles in those days, in the sort of 40s and 50s. And that, that area, that um, the, the empty quarter is so vast it's unimaginable I flew over it once and I was just like oh my gosh it just goes on forever so you know there was no real pressure on the population but the population has always been small They're, they lived in the most inhospitable region in the world and uh, were hard put to survive there but they did but all that changed when oil came into the equation and then vehicles came into the empty quarter, oil exploration started and there started the pressure on the animals from simply um, what I call joy hunting, shooting at them from, from fast moving vehicles in the empty quarter, from, from, not from the local Arabs, not from the local but rather from the Westerners who were there to extract oil. Um, and there was a lot of myths about how they were hunted down um, in the empty water by the dastardly local poachers. I'd like to know who they were. Um, they say they were from the Emirate of Qatar. Qatar is about 500 kilometers away. Um, and, and so they, they weren't under a lot of pressure until 
we as Westerners got there, we started to put them under pressure, and then they were in serious trouble. So before we go on, can you can you back up a little bit? You said the empty quarter yeah. and inhospitable, and um, I don't know what that means. So okay. yeah. is it like like what sort of desert is it? Is it like one one plant every square meter, one plant every ten meters? Every so, yeah, it, it's a massive area which stretches right across the Yemen. And Oman and Saudi Arabia and goes right up, right up to the top there. And it, it is massive. And it has very little vegetation. It has a few mountainous regions. Uh, it has just a lot of shifting sand. Uh, and the only real uh, uh, habitable areas that the Oryx could inhabit would have been the, the wadis, um, which are like valleys. And they channel any rainwater, which is very infrequent, down, down through those wadis. And plants that there's some very specialized plants that react to that. They can be 20, 30 meters underground and they will react to a red rainfall and come up and the orcs eat them. So it was a very, very precious little ecosystem. Um, and it's still there in, in the empty water. But it is, I, I believe it to be the largest desert in the world. And it is totally inhospitable. It's just a nightmare. The oryx have had to um, adapt specially to survive there. The oryx, oryx there, they have um, um, special specialities which allow them to actually survive in, in that extreme. And it is really extreme. I've been, I've been, at, I've, I've been out there into the area between um, Oman and the United Arab Emirates, and it's totally extreme. It's, you can't imagine ever seeing anything there. And there, 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 there are always there, or there were. So, what, um, sorry to go off in the weeds so much, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, like kangaroo rats in the desert in, in America, I've heard, in the, yeah, in the Americas, I've heard have, Adapted so they don't have to drink water and they yeah. get it from their food. Yeah. And the so how do the oryx, how do the oryx deal with a lack of water and yeah. how do they deal with the heat? The oryx have done exactly the same thing. Um, they, they, um, by resting up during the day and then feeding at night. Um, and they, they rest in like the wadis and the valleys so they get a bit of shade. And they, they can drop their, um, their need for water by over 60%. And they, they also have, um, specialized, um, biological equipment, which allows them to do that. They, they were, they are extremely well adapted to that environment. And it is the, I think it's something like 60%, uh, they, they can drop their water. They, they, they do not lose any water. They don't urinate, they didn't do anything like that. They, they can just survive like that. And, and one more question before we move on, which is, um, who, uh, who eats them? I mean, they apart from no humans. Natural, they, they have no natural predators um, in, in their own environment, none whatsoever. Interesting. Um, uh, their only predator is man. But they're quite unique in that way. Um, there's just nothing there apart from them. A few other things. But, but uh, no, no, they don't have any natural predators. People okay, try and the hyenas and the rare wolves, but to be honest, there, there aren't hyenas and wolves in the outdoors. They just aren't. They, they can't exist there. Wow. So, so sorry, this stuff just really fascinates me. Just sorry. One more question, then we'll move on to the main topic, which is, so when one dies, say one dies of old age or falls and breaks its leg and then dies, um, who ends up eating it? Are there vultures who, who live out in the desert? There are very rare vultures, crows and ravens and a few other birds out there. You know, given the vast expanse, it, it wouldn't surprise me, or then, it wouldn't have surprised me to, 
to go out and find uh, an entire oryx, Arabian oryx, uh, and just melted into the sand with no nothing feeding on it at all. It really it's called the empty quarter because it really is the empty quarter. It's the hardest so, place on earth. So so presumably then who is eating it would be bacteria. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So thank you for that. That 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 I love hearing stuff like this. Okay. So now now you have Westerners coming in and uh, shooting them with guns, and yeah. that starts to cause a population collapse. What year are we? We are we are around um, hang on, just let me, early 1960s, about 1962, um, and the FPS, which is the Fauna Preservation Society, which today is an extremely respectable and well thought of um, conservation organization. Um, they decided that um, the Arabian oryx was the rarest animal in the world and it had to be rescued before it became extinct in, in the empty quarter. Um, so they set out to rescue the Arabian oryx. But at the same time, they ignored the fact that in the same year that they set out to res- rescue it, I think it was 62, yeah, it was 62. Um, they, they ignored the fact that um, the so-called poachers of these extremely rare animals were actually um, sheikhs from uh, the Arabian Gulf and the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain, and everywhere else, who were trying to go out there to save the Arabian Oryx from the Western oil um, uh, exploration team. Who were shooting them. And they were labelled as poachers by the Westerners. It was the Westerners who were actually killing them. And there's there's a lot of very solid evidence to prove that was exactly what was going on. But anyway, so the FPS, the Foreign Preservation Society, um, set out with what they called Operation Oryx. And they claimed at the time that the expedition was financed by the Royal Wildlife Fund. But that is not strictly true, as the funds actually came from the USA through the powerful Earth and Shidar Safari Club, um, who financed the entire um, Operation Oryx to save the Arabian Oryx from extinction. But, you know, when I read that, when I, when I found out that the American Shikar Safari Club had financed that um, rescue mission, I, I just said to myself, why, why would a, an international organization whose members specialize in the shooting of rare and endangered species be financing a last pitch rescue expedition saving an endangered species antelope from being shot? It was just like, Anyway, that becomes apparent. But um, anyway, a deal was struck between the Fauna Preservation Society um, and the American Shikar Safari Club, who is more commonly known as the International Safari Club International today. Um, and it was a deadly deal because what they were trying to do was save an animal from extinction. That's what they said. Um, but 50% or 100% of the money that was saving that animal from extinction was financed by people who wanted to shoot that animal. And it, it, it was initially a, a, a small success. Um, but by 1998, over 30 years later, a, a large number of dead Arabian oil mostly females and calves, which had been stolen from their protected reserve and sent to their man, um, were found, and they had been taken by gangs of poachers in the employ of animal dealers who intended to sell valuable animals for huge profits to private game parks in the UAE and elsewhere in the Arabian Gulf, which meant African conflict. 
and it was where the the game parks where members of the Spy Club International have recently paid thirteen thousand eight hundred dollars an animal to shoot them dead. And these dead animals were found by highly skilled Bedouin trackers just outside the borders of Amman. And they've been dumped out of trucks with their ear tags ripped out and all of their ID marks removed. And they died from the trauma of their legal capture. And when the Bedouin trackers took DNA samples from their bodies, the Amman authorities were able to confirm that these are Arabian origins were indeed part of the captive great herd under the care and sense And they were in fact descendants of the very same Arabian origin points which had been captured by the Fauna Preservation Society way back in 1962. And then bred in zoos until their numbers finally allowed them to be reintroduced into the area, very same area, from which their ancestors had been removed 20 years earlier. Why didn't they just leave them there? Because the, the, the Sheikh of uh, Qatar confirmed that in that same year, in 1962, um, he went up there and he saw a herd of 200 Arabian odds. The, the FPS are saying there were only nine left in the world. And, and, and the Harissa tribe of Oman confirmed that they saw four separate herds of at least 25 orcs in that area. So why, why didn't they just leave them where they were? They were fine. There, 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 there was over 200 of them, which is for a scant and scarce desert population in such an inhospitable place of the world, that's, that's a good population. No, that that going to take it. But anyway, and that happened in 1962. By 1982, the San Diego Zoological Organization and a few others reintroduced those captive bred orcs back into the cage of a map into the empty quarter. And originally, it was a massive success story. By 1990, they had increased to 100. 1995, there were 280 of them. And a year later, uh, 1996, 400 animals, and yeah, they sat themselves in the back, and it was good. That was a uh, outstanding captive breeding from the introduction scheme. But then in 1996, they went wrong. The poachers arrived. Not your normal poachers who wanted meat and trophies. These boys were a different breed of poachers who wanted live animals to sell at enormous profit to animal dealers, exploiting. The international trade in endangered species. The world had changed. Within two years, the Omani herd of 400 orcs had been stripped down to 138 animals, of which only 28 were females, simply because breeding females were more valuable to the black market animal dealers. In January 1999, the poachers ran down three female orcs in one day alone. It was this point the Omani authorities made the reluctant decision to recapture all the wild Arabian orcs and bring them back into captivity to protect them from those poachers. Operational orcs have come full circle. So, again, why did they take them out of the wild to go on that massive roundabout to to recapture them from the wild. It was all wrong, you know, it was just crazy stuff. So is 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 the problem okay this is gonna be kind of a stupid question because it I, I think <laughs> sure, I think <laughs> the the but I I, I I want to be clear about this. So yeah. is the problem the actual captive breeding program or is the problem the poaching? And I'm guessing you're going to say that the poaching is associated with the captive breeding program. Yeah. You can't separate them. No, you, you can't. It, it's, um, it's all about captive breeding. It's all about the value of the animals. Um, 
more valuable um, they're more valuable dead than they are alive. Um, I, I can go out, I can pay, buy a pair of Arabian Oilers in Pakistan right now on eBay if I want to. That's going to cost me two and a half thousand dollars. If I want to go and shoot one, it's going to cost me ten and a half thousand dollars, even in Texas. Now that's wrong. That's just totally wrong. So and you can you can shoot them in Texas. There's at least fifty ranches that have got Arabian Oilers which you can shoot tomorrow. Um, yeah, ten thousand. You might you might get a special browser and get it for five or six thousand, but yeah, ten thousand. So if they if if they who whomever they is yeah, put you in okay, you you and I share the same value that what we want to see is we want to see a healthy population of Arabian oryx in the wild. Correct. So if, if, if they, whomever they is put you in charge of the Arabian oryx, uh, of the, we want Arabian oryx in the wild campaign. Um, and you actually had power. What would you, what would you do? Well, the big problem with this is that the power is in the hands of, of, of two very strange organizations, and call them what you want. Um, one is the, the Texas Ranchers, who have enormous power these days in, these, in, in, in this field. Enormous power. And they have um, enormous power, including in the the native habitat not just in yes, texas they do. yeah they do i'm afraid to say they do because believe it or not um every time an arabian oil is shot in texas 10 percent is given to the safari um it's given to the Sahara conservation fund who are in charge of looking after these arabian oils in the wild if you ever left there 10% of money paid by the hundred shootouts is given to that organization. And so, yeah, they, they have incredible power. And it, 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 uh, I, sometimes I don't know, you know, you've got the zoos on one hand who are saying, right, we're bringing these Arabian oils. We're saving them. We're, we're doing this and we're doing that. And while they're doing that, they're taking 10% from the people who are actually shooting them. And the people who are shooting them have recently been taken off Facebook. The Safari Club International has been shut down on all social media sites for life and, and, and for disinformation. And the zoo should be as well, because they're lying. They, they've never done anything to the Arabian except sell them to the Safari Club International, who are now shooting them in, in luxury shooting resorts in Dubai, where they don't even have to step out of the hotel to shoot them. They shoot them out their their windows, their shutters, from their air-conditioned rooms. And the poor Arabian Oryx are led down because that's the only place they can get water to drink. And then they shoot them. And they're paying $10,000 a time to do that. And I'm just like, well, yeah. The hunters are lying, the zoos are lying, and the Arabian hearts are dying. So there's got to be some kind of dialogue established between the Texan lobby, the Safari Club International, which is amazingly powerful, and then the zoo organisations. And let, let's not be any, any doubt here. Organisations like the San Diego <laughs> are amazingly wealthy and powerful. And but these these organizations are all lying about what they're doing. They're, they're, they're just not, you know, the zoos are claiming that they're educated, conserving, and helping wildlife. Well, they're not, because they're handing them over to the Texan ranchers. But I ain't going to slam the Texan ranchers, because they're much better at breeding Arabian Oh, it's than all the zoos in the world. You know, they, they, uh, 
until the Texan ranchers got their hands on the Arabian oils, there was only about 1,400 in the world. Four years later, Texas had 12,000 Arabian oils. These boys know how to breathe. I don't like them. I don't like what they stand for. But they do, they, they know how, how to get things done. You've got to understand me a bit, Derek, because I get um, quite emotional about this because I do not support hunters. I find it perverse. But I do not support zoos because I find them perverse as well. So I'm trying to find a common ground in which the Arabian, Arabian oils might survive. So, you know, your question, basically, what I would do, I would get the San Diego Wildlife Alliance and the FPS, World Wildlife Fund, to buy a big ranch in Texas and put a load of Arabian oryx down there under the control of Texan ranchers, but not shoot them, and then send them back to the empty port and get, get on board with the... Because the, the whole Oman thing, it should have worked out perfectly. But they got the politics wrong. They divided the tribes. They didn't understand the religion. The Western advisors got it all wrong. They, they could have done it so right. And it would be easy, very easy, to reestablish that Omani thing and get the herds back in there. Red in Texas. And yeah, it, that would work. I know it would. So the, the, and I'm not trying to defend captive breeding programs, but the problem isn't the captive breeding itself, which you say they're they're doing well in Texas for the wrong reasons. The yeah. problem is, finish the sentence. The problem is that zoos do not have the space to breed Arabian oryx or any other ungulate in the way that the Texans do. So the zoos have got to get space. If they, if they want to make a real contribution They've got to get space. They don't have space. You know, you, you've got, um, you might have 1,500 Arabian oryx spread around the world in 150 zoos. It's not going to work because you've got to have a, a minimum population of 500 animals to get a genetic breeding ground, you know, and, and the zoos can only get 10 or 15 animals massive. They're never going to do it. It's, it's just a lie. So, but in Texas, they got this huge passage passes, and they just chuck them out. And within years, they got thousands. And there's no inbreeding because it's, it's mate chooses mate and everything else. It works. And I don't want to give accolades to the Texan ranchers because I don't like them. I don't like what they do. I don't like shooting animals like that for trophies. Um, but they know, they know their animals. The zoos don't. I mean, that, that's basically what it is. They don't have the space. They just can't do it. Even the San Diego, San Diego Wildlife Alliance, which turns over something like 265 million US dollars a year, they can't do it. They just cannot do it. They haven't got the space. So, I don't know if this is going to be beyond what you want to talk about. And if it is, you can just not talk about it. But, <laughs> yeah. but if you, let's, let's say that, that you were in charge and let's say that you were able yeah. to get that put together, even though for obvious reasons you don't like working with the Texas ranchers. I, I and would work then, with them. I would. I, I didn't like it, but I would. Right, right, right. So, so then. You know it. So then this, this, this program is working really well and you're yeah. able to put in, I don't know, an additional 200 oryxes every year into the, the empty zone, empty quarter. Yeah. Yeah. And, but what would you do about that other problem of poaching? Well, of poaching by, of, of people wanting to. Yeah. That, that's quite easy actually, Derek, because. The poaching has been inspired by the demand of the Safari Club International and the Sheikha Safari Club to have animals to shoot. That's, that's what it's been promoted by. So if 
you cooperate with them and say to them, look, this is safe haven down there. You do not touch this. And and then you, because the tribal issues down there, the land in the UAE are huge, and you've got to make sure that you work with the proper tribes and do this and do that and everything else. But basically, if the Safari Club International got together with with the genuine people who want to preserve the Asian knowledge, then they, the poachers wouldn't come, because the poachers are only there to secure animals to be shot. That's, that's all they're doing. You know, it's it's it, there's places like in the UAE, uh, Barari hunting, and they're charging you three thousand pound a night to stay there. And it's ten thousand pounds to shoot an orange with a bow or a gun from your air conditioned thing. And that's in the UAE, where the Arabian orange is the national animal. So and and that 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 club is a member of Safari Club International. So you've got to work with Safari Club International. If you want to save Arabian orange, you've got to work with these people. And that, to many, that may be distasteful or abhorrent, but that's the only way I see of going forward these these animals. And that's that's what matters to me. It doesn't matter about my principles or my feelings. I'm here to save Arabian arts. and I'll, I'll do whatever I can to do it. You know? So you you and yes, I I agree with that perspective. Um, I mean that's my perspective too. Um, yeah. So. You've mentioned Safari International a few times. For people yeah. who don't actually know what it is, can you give us some more information yeah. on that? Yeah. Including, uh, I mean, I've heard about it, but yeah. I don't, I mean, how rich is it? You're talking about a lot of money here, too. Oh, that's so massively wealthy that it's, it's just unbelievable. They, they, they've recently been taken off Facebook and all other social media platforms, and it's quite rare when an organisation is taken off there, those social platforms, but they have been. And it was because they invested $750,000 in, in, into a campaign, a disinformation campaign, to make them look good. And it, it was eventually shown that, that, that they did this. But I mean, if I give you just an example, um, um, the um I'm just trying to find those oh yeah hang on this is yeah it's associated with with the Safari Club International is what's called the EWA, that's the Exotic Wildlife Association of Texas, which is entirely sponsored their their sister organizations. And in two thousand sixteen there there were Five thousand exotic game ranches in Texas under the EWA's umbrella, which is the International Survival Club, and they generated five point three billion dollars for the U.S. economy. That's a powerful lot of money. That's five thousand game ranches, and. That's a lot of money. These, these, their wealth is enormous. They're, they're one of the biggest organizations in the world. And it's, it's one of the dilemmas that I struggle with is, as I said to myself, why, why did the Safari Club International finance those idiots to put all that disinformation about them when actually, they're doing quite a good job. I hate to say that. They've bred 10,000 oryx in four years. They've saved a species. God damn it, they're shooting it, I know. But they've saved it. There were only 1,400 before they got involved. And they were inbred. They were unsuitable to be released. But the Texans got on top of it. So, it's a dilemma in my own mind and heart. Yeah, it really is. But we are talking about massive wealth. Massive. 
I'm, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, my mind is kind of boggled by 5,000 of them in just in Texas. And this is, this, these are the sorts of places that have, like you were saying, people shooting from their hotels or something. This is those, that's what, uh, people have called canned hunts. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Canned hunts. Yeah. And for, for those who don't know that phrase, what is a canned hunt? Canned hunt is where animals are kept in confinement and then hunters can go along there and shoot them at their pleasure or will. And that can be from a couple of yards away or maybe a hundred yards, hundred meters away. There's been very big cases in the USA recently where, where people have shot them from, you know, just they just want them as trophies. And, and, and the trade between the zoos, the zoos are in denial. The, the hunting lobby's in denial in the USA. You know, we don't have anything to do with each other. But the zoos are sending all their surplus endangered animals to the, to the Texan ranches so they can be shot by the hunting lobby. And they're always in denial about it, but there's, there, there's loads of evidence out there to show us exactly what they're doing. And, and it's, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service playing playing ball with them. All, you know, it's just crazy. When I when I read the stuff that I find on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service boards, I'm just like, really? You know, I, I think I, I can just read you one. Um, what was yeah? Where one of the Texan ranches called Lucky Seven. Lucky seven exotics. Not so lucky for the seven Arabian oaks that they were planning to shoot, uh, but they, um, they 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 applied to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service what they call a what they call a take culture, and it was to shoot an animal, an Arabian oaks. So they applied for the permit, and then they received a letter back from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service saying. Since the Arabian oryx are classified as endangered under the Endangered Species Act, the committee needs to address how the activity they wish to undertake enhances or benefits populations of the species in the world. Well, I found that an interesting clause. But how could anyone claim that shooting an Arabian oryx in Texas could enhance or benefit the species in the world, in Oman or elsewhere? You know, Blanche's <laughs> response. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service clause does reveal that he had some very powerful friends indeed, and then a powerful world of wildlife conservation. As he responded, I just had a take permit issued last week for Arabian Oryx, and the conservation funds are being funneled to Exotic Wildlife Association, EWA, office, that's the Safari Club International. The anti-potion works spearheaded by the Safari, Sahari, Sahara Conservation Fund, SCF, throughout North Africa and Western Asia. <coughs> In this case, lucky seven exotics will contribute 10% of the cost of the hunt for each Arabian oryx taken by the hunter to conservation work by the Sahara Conservation Fund. The EWA will initially receive the funds and pour it on to SCF. Let me know if this works. Question mark. It did. Well, you gotta, you gotta realize here, you're talking about the Sahara Conservation Fund is one of the most respected and important conservation organizations in the world. And here we have them taking 10% of every Arabian oryx shot in Texas. That's their final answers. I think we need to stop the bus right there. And I, 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 I searched for the payments and I went to all their tax records, IRS you call them, and I found payments that have been made to um, To, to that organization, to Arabian Oryx in Texas. So they're saving Arabian Oryx in Sahara. 
but they're doing it with money that's culled from the lady in our screenshot in Texas. I don't think that's a world I really want to live in, Derek. That's just too bizarre for even me. So uh, something that you and I have talked about in previous interviews yeah. and is is that I mentioned also in one of my books that after a few generations in captive breeding programs, uh, wild animals begin to uh, they begin to change very, very quickly. Anyway, yeah, yeah. And so are these oryxes who are being re-released yeah. are they still um if they were left alone would they still be capable of surviving in the wild they, yeah if no <laughs> if they're captive bred they have a very slim chance so uh, they quickly found out the man or man and they reintroduced them that without constant care and attention the orcs would not survive. Uh, whereas prior to that, prior to this whole give up, the orcs were more than capable of surviving. And um, the, the the people who were involved in the Oman reintroduction did note that the captive bred uh, oryx struggled and that their youngsters struggled even more. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot of concern about the fact that the, the, the oryx, there's four species of oryx and adepts as well. And all the ones that are now being reintroduced back into the wild have been kept in, um, not where I was involved in Bahrain, we kept our separate Arabian oryx, but in other UAE countries and Saudi Arabia, They've allowed them to intermingle with Gemsbok and all sorts of other scimitorned oryx. And there's a lot of interbreeding that's gone on. And I've looked at pictures and, and studied sites. And I'm, I'm not happy that Arabian oryx are Arabian oryx anymore, to be honest with you. I'm really not. I think they might be, all be hybrids, you know. I have a feeling. So what is the what is the current um what is the I think you've said this but can you can you repeat it I'm not clear what is the current situation actually in the empty quarter with so far as oryx yeah, yeah there there um there are several reintroductions going on at the moment um in Saudi Arabia in the UAE and in Oman as well and um, but uh, they keep it very much under, they, they don't like talking about it, and so it's very difficult to find any information about it. Um, but, you know, what, what bothers me more than anything is that the UAE claim that they've got now 7,000 Arabian oryx in the UAE in the introduction schemes, but, but where are those hunting lodges in there uh, owned by the Survival Club International, and, and you know the, the rumours are that there there is an intensive they're being bred to be shot. So you know you've got the Texan ones, you've got the UAE ones, you've got the Saudi Arabian ones, and I've I found some very conclusive ed- evidence to show absolutely that a lot of the Arabian oryx that end up in United Arab Emirates are shot as trophies. Definitely. I can prove that beyond the shadow of a and, and that's probably the case with Saudi Arabia, but I'm not able to get into their record systems or into the Omani as well. But it seems to me that that, that would be the case. So, something we haven't talked about at all, and this, this may be none of my business, but yeah. you've, you've talked in your, in your bio about how um, you worked for the ruling family of a Gulf state for many years, turning half yeah. the country into wildlife reserve. Yeah. And you are um, 
you if I were to use one phrase to describe you, it would certainly not be yes man. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just I have to ask, I know it's none of my business, yeah, but how is, how is your relationship with your with your employers and ex employers, given that you uh want to tell the truth even when it is not the sort of thing that a public relations industry would want to have out there? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I can be totally honest about that because I still have a very good relationship with the um, with the people I worked out with in in, in the Arabian Gulf. Well. Um, I'm still in, in in contact with them very often, um, and and what we we were doing there was the right thing. Um, we we as I said we 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 took over half the island and we just let the oil free in there. And we didn't attempt to manage them, we just let them free in there. And we had a very sustainable and, and very good herd of them. And we didn't mix them with any other species of orange. Um, but I can't say that for the other Arabian Gulf states because I know for a fact that they have been mixed them and there, there are hybrids. I've seen them. I've actually seen them. So, I so I think this this raises a really important non-Oryx point that yeah. on so many different issues, I have heard people say, oh, gosh, I wish I could speak out, but I'll lose my job. <laughs> yeah. And you yeah. seem to have been it's like, yeah, I was doing this work and yeah. I'm going to tell the truth about it no matter what anybody yeah. thinks, which yeah. I think is necessary. Yeah. And um, and you see what I'm getting at, right? That, that I'm sure yeah, you've yeah. you've known people too. They're like, oh yeah. gosh, I wish I could talk out like you do because, yeah. but I can't because yeah. I'm afraid. Of, so how, what do you say to people who who say, well, I wish I could be more honest about stuff, but I can't because I'm scared of losing my well, job. Yeah, in the end, I did lose my job there. To be honest with you, and it was it was because of this, not the Arabian Oryx issue. It was about uh, another issue with the bird, Zara Bustards, where I just didn't agree with what was going on at all. And I said so, and I got, I, I got out, you know, I got out of it. And I lost it. It, it was a very good job. But my, my principles and my honesty were actually more important. And, and I can honestly say that my life is, is, is better for it than being honest at that stage, you know. And turned down all that money and just said, right, this is my principle. I ain't moving. And I've done all right by sticking up for my principle. So I would say to anyone else, just be truthful to yourself. Stand up. Say it, you know. Don't back down. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for that. I think that's an incredibly important lesson. And so we have like a couple minutes left. Can you... um, Gosh, we covered so much material. I don't even know how to, how to close down today. Um, what what can is there anything else you want to say about Arabian oryx or this whole model conservation model or anything anything you want to give us a couple three four minutes? Yeah, I I, I would just like you know this this has been a very intense it's been my life work it's been a very intensive study and I have yet to find a successful um, captive breeding and reintroduction program from any zoo in the world. I've found nothing. I've only found two uh, captive breeding reintroduction programs that have actually worked. One is the um, the Griffin Vultures in France. The other one is the Iberian Lynx in Spain and Portugal. And none of those, neither of those have anything to do with zoos. Zoos, I, I don't believe zoos have any role to play in, in this at all. None. It, it, I'm, I'm doing the Mauritius Kestrel. That's my next project. And that is even worse than what we've just been talking about. You know, so I, I, I would be delighted to find a successful captive breeding the interrupt from a zoo. I haven't done so yet. And I spent my whole life working in zoos. So I, I sort of know what I'm talking about there. Well, 
Thank you for that. And let's do, I know I just said that that was what I wanted you to end on, but I want you to end on, uh, give us just a little, little bit more, help people just a tiny bit more to fall in love with Arabian Oryxes. I, I, I remember my first morning uh, at Alarim in, in Bali and coming down. It was five because you had to go down at five o'clock in the morning. You finish at one. It was just so hot you couldn't work up to one. And driving down to the reserve and going into the gate and then just seeing this pure majesty of these luminous white olives who came to look at me and see what the hell I was doing there in their reserve. And I was just like, privilege. I was just like, because you, you have these encounters sometimes. And I know it wasn't in the world, I know that. But it was just amazing. I'd seen pictures of them, seen, you know, videos of them, films about them, and then suddenly 30 of them right in front of me in a desert, in a real desert. And I was just like, this is the ultimate. Uh, they're just gorgeous. They're absolutely gorgeous. Luminous by and just stunning. You know, that, that first look. And they shouldn't be in zoos. You know, that's, that's, that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You've got to see them. You'll see them where they live in their own habitat, but you mustn't shoot them. So well, and I, I think that that's true for, for, other animals too. I don't think if you've seen a wolverine in a zoo, I don't yeah. think that means you've seen a wolverine. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. Totally agree. You know, I mean, recently I saw a um, we call them pine pine martin in the garden in France, and just it was running around the garden in control, and I, I was just like, wow, that's a pine martin in the garden. I haven't seen a wolverine yet. I would love to. That's my favourite animal. Really. Um, but yeah, when you when you see them like that, that is just totally different. It really is totally different. It's a blessing and it's a privilege. Is as it should be. So, yeah. thank you so much for all of this, and I would thank you for for your work in the world, and I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Paul Webb. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.